Hello, and welcome to You Are Now Aware, where we speak of mysterious murders, scary stories, and conspiracy theories, all hosted by Alex Wiseman-Rose. Today, we will explore a killer that will live in infamy in the state of Ohio forever, a case famous for stomping top detectives and leaving a permanent stain on Ohio forever. Between 1934 and 1938, in Cleveland, Ohio, right by Kingsbury Run, six women and seven men were killed, a total of 13 people. All seemed to be sex workers or hobos. Every single victim was decapitated, though many of the heads were never found, leading to only three to ever be identified. The bodies were always dismembered through the torso, and the bodies were never found fully intact. The constant bodily mutations would lead to the killer being named the Cleveland Torso Killer. He was also known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. This is the second episode of this series, and today we will be exploring the Cleveland Torso Killer. Let's go back in time to 1935, when Ohio, like most of the United States, was infected by the downward spiral of the Great Depression. Cleveland was hit hard with an estimated 50% unemployed, or working menial jobs that left them bereft and unable to care for their families. Immigrants and African American families suffered around 90% unemployment. Children went without school as teachers went unpaid. There were nearly 13,000 evictions in the city. The previous year was wild, and shanty towns became more and more of a common thing. These were known as Hoover towns, named after the president, Herbert Hoover. One of the bleakest of all places was in Ohio, a place called Kingsbury Run, a practical shanty town. The most dangerous area inside of Kingsbury Run was labeled the Roaring Third a place full of illegal activity of all sorts, gambling, prostitution, dealing, etc., etc. On September 23rd in Kingsbury Run, one of the most desolate and hard-hit areas as originally stated, two male bodies were found in the bushes on Jackass Hill. One of them was actually one of the few bodies ever identified. His name was Edward Andrasi and his body was laying 30 feet away from the other victim, later called John Doe I. His actual name was never found, so they would label the unidentified bodies as John Doe or Jane Doe, with a number at the end. It's suspected John was killed weeks ago, and Edward's body had actually been there for only two or three days. Someone had beheaded and emasculated both of them, and Drossy strangled having rope burns on his wrists. The police arrived and conducted a full investigation, during which they recovered both heads. John Doe was the only body that had evidence of a strange chemical preservative, which turned the skin thick and red and almost leathery. This was the possible beginning of the Cleveland Torso Murders, the work of one of the most heinous and brutal serial killers in United States history. Though the idea of this being the start of the killing spree is actually up for debate, on September 5th of that very same year, a lady later called the Lady of the Lake's body was found on the shore of Lake Erie. All that could be found of the unidentified woman was her lower half, with her thighs still attached but amputated at the knees. She seemed to be treated with the same chemical as John Doe was, leading for her skin to look more leathery and red. 
The next victim was found on January 26 of 1936. Her name was Florence Polillo, one of the three bodies that had been identified. Another resident of the Roaring Third who worked as a sex worker, waitress, and barmaid. Her body was found scattered in wooden baskets that were full of newspapers, and various body parts were found by the Hart Manufacturing Building. At first, all that could be found of this next victim was the head. On June 5th in 1936, the unidentified man's head was found wrapped in what seemed to possibly be his own trousers. The rest of the body was found a day later in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. This body seemed purposely placed in front of the police's building, as if to mock them. This body, of course, was later named John Doe II, due to it being another unidentified man. Even with fingerprints present and multiple distinct tattoos, the police could not identify this man. They made a wax mask of his face and made a display of it at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936. More than 100,000 people saw the death mask, as it was called, and tattoo chart, and yet he was never identified. He would be called the Tattooed Man. The sixth victim, since we're counting the Lady of the Lake, was another man found on July 22nd of 1936. His body was found in the forest, and the body seemed to be months old. The ground around the body was coated in blood, looking as if he had been attacked on sight. Some believe that the body was just ripped apart by animals, but the autopsy would say otherwise. It looked as if the body had been dismembered while he was still alive. His head was later recovered as well, but what was strange about that is that this was the only victim found on the west side. Some wonder if the torso killer had even committed this murder, since it was away from all the others, and a lot more brutal even but the missing head seemed to point in the same direction as all the others. The seventh victim was found on September 10th of 1936, when a man tripped over the body of a headless corpse. Police searched around and found the lower torso of the man and both legs in a nearby open sewer, separated from the rest of it. More than 600 onlookers watched the recovery of this body. Things were getting serious, and the public was really beginning to catch up on what was happening. Tension was growing higher and higher, and soon the Cleveland Press, the Cleveland News, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer all reported of the killings and lack of any sort of progress by the police. So many bodies had been found, and yet not a single suspect had been named. Though with the next body, the coroners had caught on to something that could be used as a crucial piece of evidence. The coroner would note that there was a lack of hesitation when decapitating the head, leading to show signs that the killer knew what they were doing. The killer clearly knew some sort of anatomy to know exactly where to cut and how to make the perfect incision to most efficiently decapitate the victim, which the police would later take note of. The head had been taken in one clean stroke. Unfortunately, this info didn't do anything to gather any possible suspects. The media and public were being relentless, throwing the resident mayor under the bus and putting the lack of progression on this case as his own doing. Mayor Harold Burton was led to speak to the recently appointed safety director, Elliot Ness, and beg for him to get more involved in this case. A side note on Elliot Ness. 
He was an incredibly successful prohibition enforcing agent that was rather famous for not only being the lead of an elite unit of Chicago enforcement agents called the Untouchables, but for being known as the man that took down famous American gangster Al Capone. He was definitely experienced in this field. He was known for busting various corrupt officers, gangs, and much, much more. The local police department also put detectives Peter Merlo and Martin Zilowiski on the case. These two would go undercover and interview almost 1,500 people, and by the time the case had run its course, the department altogether had interviewed more than 15,000 people, making this the biggest investigation in Cleveland history. The police force was now doing their best to be all over this case as much as possible. Going back to the main story, the next victim was found on the 23rd of February in 1937. Remnants of an unidentified woman was found on the Euclid Beach on the Lake Erie shore. She was found at the same controversial area as the Lady of the Lake, seeming to serve as proof as to why the Lady of the Lake should be known as a part of the torso-killing spree. This body's head was never found. And unlike previous bodies, this one seemed as if decapitation wasn't the cause of death, and that the removing of the head was done after the fact. The lower half of the torso was found washed up three months later under the same bridge. On June 6, a woman believed to possibly be known as Rose Wallace was found beneath the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. She was the only black victim, and was found decapitated and missing a rib, her head was recovered, but her body seemed to have been there for possibly over a year. Her skull was found in a nearby burlap sack. The police tried to follow every single lead they had due to finding the unofficial dental records, which led to her identification, but research came up empty. Her being counted as one of the three identified victims is controversial due to her dental records being unofficial after all. On July 6, an exact month later, the 10th victim was found. He was pulled out of a nearby river by the Cleveland Flats. His head was not recovered, but his heart seemed to be missing when his body was. A nearby guardsman had seen the first piece of the victim floating in a passing tugboat. It would take a few days before the rest of the body was found. There was a clear aura of viciousness in this kill. The killer seemed to be almost growing more restless, or maybe even more comfortable. Killings were happening more and more often, too. On April 8th of 1938, the next body was found. A laborer had stumbled across the body when walking on the banks of the local river, finding the lower half of the woman's body only. A month later, the police would pull out two burlap sacks out of the river, containing the upper parts of her torso and legs. The coroner had found drugs in her system. Drugs possibly suspected of immobilizing the victim and putting them in a paralyzed state. She was never identified. On August 16th of 1938, the last two bodies were found. The bodies were discovered at the same time, a man and a woman. They were both headless, and both heads were recovered later. The man's head found in a nearby trash can. The bodies were never identified. But what was different about this was the fact that the bodies were found in view of Elliot Ness's window, right in front of his office. The killer was confident, and Elliot was growing more and more restless. The killer was mocking him, and he knew he had to do something quick. 
So at 12.40 a.m. on August 18th of 1938, he did something incredibly reckless and almost immoral in his frantic state. He and 35 officers were to raid Kingsbury Run's Hobo Jungle. Eleven squad cars, two police vans, and three fire trucks all rushed to the makeshift shacks by the nearby river where so many bodies had been found. The officers had gathered up 63 men, and by dawn, officers and firemen began to search the now deserted hobo jungles for any sort of evidence or clues. Nothing was found, so Elliot Ness decided to do what would later be the highly controversial move. He would burn down the hobo jungle. The media went rampant and denounced Ness. They were fearing for their lives and their supposed symbol of hope was burning down the only things these hobos called home, all to the ground. All of the now homeless people were charged with being homeless later, which they had to plead guilty for. Elliot Ness would try to defend his actions by saying that this was his way of keeping all of the men safe though that would not explain the later charges against them for being homeless. No one believed this would stop the murders, though strangely enough, they stopped. In 1938, there seemed to be some sign of a possible suspect when a hobo named Emil Froneck came to authorities, claiming that in 1934, a doctor tried to drug him around East 50th Street and on East 55th Street. However, when the police took him around to investigate, no sort of doctor's office could be found which the man had originally described, and he was found as crazy and unhelpful. His suspicions were dismissed. In July of 1939, the county sheriff would arrest an older man named Frank Dolezal for the murder of the January 1936 victim, Flo Palillo. The ground he was arrested for was because not only had he lived with Flo, but he had also been acquainted with Edward Androssi and Rose Wallace. He seemed to have the connections, and the police seemed desperate for a suspect. His confession came out to be mindless ramblings with hints of neat and precise details. It was clearly coerced, because he hadn't seemed to know any of the actual details of any sort of the murders at all. On later examination, it was revealed that he had broken six ribs in the custody of the sheriff that had arrested him. He later would try to recant his confession, but unfortunately, near the upcoming court date, he was found hanging in his cell. He had hung himself from a hook that was five feet and seven inches off of the ground, which seemed impossible due to the fact that he was five feet and eight inches tall. It's clear that the police department, or specifically the sheriff, did not want the public to hear this man's defense, and so killed the man before he could take away his confession before the jury of peers. Later, it was revealed that Elliot Ness had a secret suspect that he had kept away from all peers, a man named Francis E. Sweeney. He clearly had an unstable individual who had been to court many times and was also known of malpractice, abusive tendencies when drunk, disappearing for days on end, and was known for knowing anatomy quite well, leading to the possible knowledge of how to decapitate and mutilate so efficiently. In May of 1938, Ness had secretly apprehended his secret suspect, taking him to the Cleveland Hotel. 
He interrogated him for 10 to 15 days, though apparently it took Sweeney a couple days to even sober up. Leonard Keeler, the inventor of the polygraph, administered a lie detector test to Sweeney. Sweeney failed twice. Both were certain that this man was the killer. Unfortunately, nothing could be done with this info for a couple of reasons. Their actions of taking in a suspect with the lack of information were still seen as against civil liberties of this time and definitely would not have been sanctioned by the police department. Another reason was that Francis E. Sweeney was the relative of Congressman Martin L. Sweeney, so he couldn't go public with his information. He wouldn't be able to do anything with his info in these circumstances. After Sweeney's release, that's when the final murders would happen outside of Elliot Ness's window. However, after the final murders, in August of 1938, Dr. Sweeney had checked himself into the mental institution nearby, showing a clear reason as to why the killings had stopped. He was even later diagnosed as schizophrenic in 1956. Ness would receive taunting note cards and letters from Sweeney, mocking him, though they all said practical nonsense and nothing more. Though, except a couple. One had a section of an article attached, speaking of a handbook for poisoners. Nothing too incriminating. Another letter of Dr. Sweeney was signed The American Sweeney, a believed reference to the fictional British serial killer Sweeney Todd. This kind of joke seemed right up his alley. Case expert James Bedall, an American true crime writer and assistant English professor, spent over 18 years researching this case and wholeheartedly believes that Francis E. Sweeney was the killer. Seventy years later from when the hobo named Emil Frenick had came forward to the police, James Bedell had found out that Francis E. Sweeney had practiced medicine in an unsuspecting building right between the two streets Frenick had mentioned before. The hobo's story seemed to have actually held some ground. Some wonder as to how no one noticed anything around these buildings, since the decapitating and mutilation of a body can end up extremely messy. A scientific researcher named David Cowles, who was interviewed by the Cleveland Police Historical Society, an area where I've received most of my information, suggested that Sweeney knew of an undertaker nearby, and the nearby undertaker had allowed him to work on unclaimed bodies in his funeral home. And just as luck would have it, Right next to his office was a funeral home with a perfect back entrance right into the undertaking facilities. Both buildings are close to the Roaring Third, where most of the bodies were originally found. Police suspect that he had lured people from the Roaring Third back to his office while offering possible drugs, alcohol, or even medical attention. Bedell, on researching the movements of Sweeney and the Torso Killer, was quoted on saying the results were creepy as hell. Bedell had concluded that he was the killer, and there wasn't a doubt in his mind. Ness seemed to have even had the same idea as well, however, was unable to bring him to court. It's unfortunate to know that two innocent people would have been saved if they had simply found enough information to take Frank E. Sweeney to jail. But there's one more suspicious detail in this case. The official police file had disappeared. It's gone, and no one knows why or where, or who, knows what information we could be missing. Information that we will never know. But that raises the question. 
Are we certain that Dr. Frank E. Sweeney committed these murders? There will always be a doubt in our minds because it's really impossible to know. But honestly, it looks like it was him. The evidence lines up so perfectly. Thank you for listening to my podcast, and to remember to check in every Wednesday at 8pm on Woo91 to hear it live. The original script for this episode talks about how you will not need to check in next Wednesday due to me being on fall break, but this episode was re-recorded during fall break, so you can expect to see me on Woo91 on Wednesday. Great news, the podcast is no longer waiting approval on Apple Podcasts. You can now listen to it on there as well, and it will honestly be better quality due to being recorded on a separate mic. If you wish to contact me, you can contact me on the following email, awiseman-rose23 at worcester.edu. Again, that's awiseman-rose23 at worcester.edu. You can request all sorts of cases or ideas, and I'll get back to you. This episode's information came from mostly the Cleveland Police Museum's record of the whole case. Our information was gathered from the Cleveland Torso Killer Wikipedia page and BuzzFeed's Unsolved video. Give yourself a pat on the back if you stuck through this whole episode, and now know that you are now aware. I hope this sticks with you, just as it did with me. And know that if you're ever in Cleveland, that the Torso Killer could still be out there looking for his next victim. Or he's probably dead at this point. Stay aware, my friends. And remember, they are always watching.